right, you'll find our text this morning in Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 16. Matthew, chapter number 16. Thank you to the Jenkins family for singing. What a blessing. I'm glad I know him. I'll tell you something else I'm glad of. I'm glad that he knows me. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 13, we'll read through the 20th verse. Matthew 16, verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's go to the word in a, to the Lord in a word of prayer. Brother Greg, would you please pray for us, brother? Amen. Thank you, Brother Greg. Thank you. All right. We're looking at this text this morning, and I'm going to break away a little bit from his, my, what is my traditional method. Usually I just do expository preaching from one verse down through the uh, through the entirety of the text that I read. This morning we're going to focus the bulk of our attention really on one verse uh, we'll probably say a few things about the majority of the text, but there's a thought that I have on my heart and a thought that I have on my mind. That thought is the church victorious. The church victorious. Church nowadays seems to have a, uh, the world rather, let's say it that way, uh, culture, society has a low estimation of the church. That's no new uh, thing. That's not, a, that's not something that's only taking place in our lifetime. Uh, so long as there has been a visible church on earth, it's never been well received by the world. Uh, but it's well received by the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Lord loves his church so much to the extent that he loved it and gave himself for it. Um, and he's going to present it to himself one day, a bride without spot and without blemish. And I'm glad to be identified among that number of God's people that constitute his church. The word church, if you were to go through your New Testament and underline every instance where the word is used, I believe you would arrive at the conclusion that the word, the English word church appears some 115 times. And you would learn if you did a little further exhaustive study on the matter, you would find that 114 of the 115 times that the word church is uh, used, that it, 114 of those times that it's rendered from one Greek word, ekklesia, ekklesia. And that word means a lawful, organized assembly. Uh, out of those 114 times that the word ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia is translated into the English word church, you'll find that it's used in three different ways. You'll find, firstly, it's used in a way to identify Israel in the wilderness in Acts chapter number 7 and verse number 38. And then, secondly, you'll see that it's used again in the book of Acts chapter 19, verse 32 through 41. Uh, it's used to denote a political assembly. And it's used three times in one of those two ways. So that leaves us with the remaining 111 instances in the New Testament where the word ecclesia is translated church, that it is uh, a direct, um, a, a direct announcement of Christ assembly here on earth. Christ church, Christ bride. 
the bride of Christ, his church. The first mention that you ever find of Christ's church, his bride, would be in the text in the New Testament. You'll find it mentioned here in the text that we've read, Matthew chapter 16. It's mentioned in verse number 18. Biblical scholars and theologians have debated when did the church begin. Some would tell you it began in the early days of the book of Acts, and then others would say uh, in this verse that we've read, and then some might would note other places. And I want to tell you that all of the above are wrong. The church started in the mind of God in eternity past. Uh, when he decided to redeem a people uh, that formed his church in his mind and in his heart in eternity past, just as it was as it's concerned, as your uh, salvation is concerned. Um, I want to say about three things, really, and what I'm going to say this morning, it's not, it's not all of that deep. It's not all of that, uh, it's not all that theological. You might say it's rather elementary, but it's truth. It's pure truth. And, and I want to say it because of this reason. Because in the age that we live in, um, the local church has been brought down to a very low estimation in the eyes of people. It used to be that church held a place of preeminence in the community. There was a time, and I'm not going to get off and get all negative, but there was a time when the local schoolhouse turned out for two or three weeks at a time to let the, ch the children go to day services in what they called protracted revival meetings. That's no longer the case. Uh, church oftentimes is looked at as a, uh, an organization that one might go to and affiliate themselves with if it is rendered that it might be of some social benefit to them or some political benefit or some financial benefit to them. The church is rarely any more viewed uh, through the lens that it should be viewed, and that is that it is the darling bride of Christ. It has been left, we have, we have been left here. Uh, God has given us a comforter in the Holy Ghost who constantly abides with us, uh, he's given us his word uh, that we can lean on, that we can glean from, and it can guide us and direct us. But he's left us his church, and he's made us a part of his church. And I want to tell you that the church is to have a vital place in the life of the believer. I'm convinced that the New Testament is foreign to the notion of a believer who has no need for a church. Now, I'm not saying that there's not people out here who are walking around under a haze of delusion and they may have been genuinely born again, but somehow they've been convinced that I don't need church because of one first one thing or the other, but they need church. You mark that down. There's no Rambos in this thing of serving God in the matter of Christianity. Listen, I need you this morning and you need one another. The church, the body, <coughs> excuse me, the body and bride of Christ. We need one and other. You rest assured in that. In Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 18, when he begins to speak to Peter, and, and Brother Jay has covered this in vacation, or rather in, uh, in uh, Sunday school, and this is one of the places where Peter, we know he's noted for making those comments that would have been better left unsaid. But one thing about Peter that I admire about him, he's never... Uh, he's never hit the ball and just made it to first base. Peter will strike out or he will hit a home run every time, and this is a home run. He hit a grand slam right here. He asked him, he said, who do men say that I am? And everybody was willing to give an answer then. Everybody's willing to talk about what somebody else thinks. Well, some say Jeremiah or Elias or first one and then the other. And then he, got a, he, he, he narrowed the circle down a little tighter, did he not? He said, but, but who do you say? Who do you guys say that I am? Verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter knocked it out of the park. He hit a grand slam. Jesus responds to him, and he tells him that flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to him, but his Father, which is in heaven. 
And then he says, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, a common misunderstanding of this verse is that he's saying that he would build his church upon Peter. That's not what he's saying. A very brief and, and minimal uh, grasp of the original text will show you that he's using two different words there. Uh, one refers to a little pebble and the other to a huge boulder. And he said, Peter, you're just a little, if you could put it in our language, he'd say you're a little piece of pea gravel. But I want you to know that upon this huge boulder, Christ, I will build my church. And can I tell you that anything Jesus ever said he would do, he has done. Has he not? He said he would build his church and he's still building his church. Just a few weeks ago, one was birthed into the family of God around here and God was building his church. Thank you, sir. And so I want to say as it relates to that and as it relates to the church, um, I want to, I want to look at three different things. I want to look at the church's detractors. There are detractors. I want to look at its defenders. The church has defenders. And I want to look at its destination. So uh, let's get into that, if you would, with me. The church, its detractors. We say that they are demonic. They're determined. They're doomed. And we see every bit of that in the 18th verse with Jesus' declaration to Peter. He said, upon this rock, that being Christ himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I say concerning the detractors of the church of God. And when I say church of God, I'm not speaking of a denomination. I'm talking about Christ's church. When it comes to the church of God, it has detractors. And the first thing I would say, if I were to describe the detractors, they are firstly and foremost demonic. Anyone who would fight against the church of God is demonically influenced. He says it in this very text. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ himself announced who his opposition would be. He announced who his detractors would be. Who it was that would stand against the bride of Christ. And it would be the devil and his imps. It would be the gates of hell. Have you ever noticed that that's always the crowd that fights against the church? They are demonic. They are demonically influenced. And I would say secondly that they are determined. He said again in verse number 18 that they shall not prevail. What that tells us that they are going, now he's told us that they will not prevail and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but it indicates that they're going to be consistent in their opposition to the church of God. It means that they're not just going to say, hey, let's call it a truce. They're going to be vigilant. They're going to be constant. They're going to be vehement in their opposition to the church of God. And so they are determined. It has been that way. It is that way. And it shall remain that way as long as there is a church here on earth. But the good news is, is not only are they demonic and they are determined, but they are doomed. Verse 18 allows that as well. It says that they shall not, shall not, shall not prevail. That's what the word of God says. You can do a brief history lesson and you can figure out throughout human history that there have been those who were Opposed to the church to the extent that they declared that they themselves would destroy the church on earth and they dedicated their life to that and they died and the church remained and it's still here today. <clears throat> Nero was mentioned sometime recently, I believe in one of our Sunday school classes, how that Nero hated the people of God, how that he did everything within his power to destroy the church of God. How that he likely burned Rome and blamed it on the church and caused the society, the culture to hate anybody who identified with the person of Christ. That was Nero. He would take Christians and he would take their bodies and, and put them on staves, if you will, at a, at a, at a elevation and then set them afire and use that burning 
Christian body to eliminate his, to, to illuminate his botanical gardens as he and his godless associates meandered through the gardens. Now I'm telling you that the people of God, the church of God, have always been opposed by this world. The thing is the church of God has always flourished under great persecution. You go all through history and I don't know every individual and I don't have time to tell you of the ones that I am familiar with. But to mention another, Voltaire, that Frenchman, that French atheist, he said, he said, Miss Peggy, that in his lifetime that he would eradicate Christianity from off of the face of the globe and he give it his best effort. But can I tell you, on his deathbed, Voltaire admitted that he had made an awful mistake and he feared that he was in great trouble with God. And he was in great trouble with God. And he died and he plunged into a devil's hell where he is today. In a short time after his death, the property was purchased, a printing press was moved in, and they printed Bibles where that French atheist who had declared that he would eliminate the church of God and Christianity from off of the face of the earth. But I'm telling you, when Jesus said in this 18th verse that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he meant that they shall not. Yes, the detractors are demonic. Yes, they are determined. But you guarantee yourself this thing, they are doomed. There will be the church of God residing on the face of this planet we call earth on the day that Jesus returns. If not, what would he be returning for? There will be a church here. Jesus comes as a thief in the night quickly, but I want to tell you that he is not a thief. He will not take that that is not his. He will return some glad day and someday very soon we hope, but he's coming to take that which is his, his darling bride, the church of God to which those of us that have been redeemed, washed in the blood, born again, belong. Hallelujah to God for that. I say the church of God, it has its detractors, but thank God it has its defenders. It has its defenders, does it not? They are, firstly, I would say to you, called. The defenders of the church of God are called. People, they are a called out people. That is what constitutes this word church in the first place. We are a, we are a called out assembly, a called out people from among those masses. God redeems us and, and we gather together. That's what makes us a church. They are called. Acts chapter two and verse 47 says this. The Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. They are called. Now I love seeing people get saved, don't you? I love seeing people born again. I love to see people under Holy Ghost conviction and get to the end of themselves and get to the place to where they understand I can't go any further. I can't do any more. I can't seem to resist And I'm going to bow my knee to the good grace of God and beg out for mercy and believe that Christ died on the cross for me. I'm telling you that the defenders of the church of God are a called out people. It's not like other groups. It's not like societies and sororities and fraternities and things like that. I'm telling you that the church of God is the biggest thing going on the face of God's earth. I told the pastor the other day as we were talking, I said, Brother Kevin, Brother Harvey Ware used to tell me, and I'm saying to you, Brother, we're part of the biggest thing going, and this world don't even know it. Hallelujah. They think the business deals that they are orchestrating and the schemes and the plans that they've set in motion, that that's the biggest thing going. But I'm telling you that there's a God in heaven who birthed a church in his heart and eternity past. And he's calling his people together. And he's orchestrating this thing. And the church of God is the greatest and grandest thing that this globe has ever known. And bless your heart. He lets you be a part of it. Hallelujah. Thank God. Amen. Glory. 
that is worth getting excited about. Listen, when I was a boy, the Boy Scouts wouldn't have me. The baseball team wouldn't have me. Sometimes mama wasn't sure if she wanted me. But thank God, Jesus wanted me. Aren't you glad to be identified with the people of God? With the church of God? Hey, this is my people. This is my crowd. This is my element that we're in this morning. Amen. You're looking at a preacher who's a introvert left to himself. I'm not, believe it or not. I'm not a people person. I'm not a socialite. I don't like rubbing shoulders with a bunch of people. Had God not saved me, I'm the man that would try to buy as much acreage as possible, build a little hut right in the middle of it, and try to put in all sort of obstacles round about it, prevent even the mailman from getting in. And go to, call, to go to town twice a year to get coffee, flour, and sugar. But there's something about when it's time for the church of God to gather together. When it's time for the church bells to ring and God's people gather together on the Lord's day or the midweek service or a special meeting, I want to be there. I want to be in my place among God's people. <coughs> Is it not amazing how God orchestrates this thing? How he calls different people from different backgrounds, from different areas of life. And we are so different. But yet God in his glory and in his greatness has placed all of us together. And we come together and we fellowship together around the fact, hey, hallelujah, that we've been to Calvary. That we've been washed in the blood. We've been born again, redeemed by the good grace of God. I'll tell you, everybody ought to be running laps right about now. Thank God for the church. Let the Voltaires of this world say what they will. Let the atheists and the rest of them say what they will. There's people drove by this morning already probably thought, why would anybody go and park up on that hilltop this morning and waste their beautiful Sunday morning? But I'm glad to be here among God's people. There's no place in the world that a child of God ought to be or want to be on the Lord's day than gathered with his people. They are a called people. Do you know one of the marks of a true Christian? John tells us in his first epistle that if you're of the people of God, you'll love the brethren. God's people just love each other, do they not? I mean, God's people, when they see each other, just somehow brings a smile on their face. Now, some people are not as lovable as others, are they? Everybody's not as lovable as you and I are. But we love God's people. God puts a special love in our heart for the family of God. He does that because we're brothers. Because we're sisters. Listen, there are those of us gathered here this morning who God has done such a work in our hearts with the people of God that the people of God somehow have a closer place in our heart than some of those that have our very blood running through their veins. Thank God for his people. Thank God for his church. It's defenders. They are called. They are committed. The defenders of the church of God, they are a committed lot of people. Listen, we talked about just a few moments ago when we were speaking of the detractors, we said they are determined. And if we're going to be in a warfare against a determined group, we are to be a committed group, wouldn't you think? What I find of God's people, the truly redeemed of God, is they are a committed lot. They love God. They love His people. They love His Word. They love His house. They seem to not be able to get enough of any of the of the above. I've seen God's people get the starch knocked out of them. I've seen God's people, for lack of a better expression, just get their guts ripped out through life and different things. And you know what you see? You see them on the Lord's day. They hobble right on into the house of God and they find their place and they worship God in song, oftentimes lifting a feeble hand by faith, not even knowing how their God will work their situation out, but believing that he will. 
and be faithful to the house of God. Have you not seen those who you wondered how? How do they even get up? How do they carry on? I'll tell you how. Because they are a determined lot. They are faithful to the one who loved them and gave himself for them. They are a determined lot. I'm so thankful for the determination of God's people. Had it not been for the determination of God's people, I might still be, I might would be in hell this morning. At the very least lost, but God's people were determined because there were a handful of people that decided we can't let him go to hell. We've got to pray. We can't stop praying. We've got to be persistent. We've got to be consistent. We've got to be determined. Thank God that the people of God are determined people. It's defenders. They're called. They're committed. They're conquerors. You're familiar with Romans 8, chapter 33 through verse verse 33 through verse 37. There in the 37th verse, it talks about all of those things that cannot touch us. And it says, and yea, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors. You can call it what you will. You can call it preservation or perseverance or whatever. But I'm telling you, God's people, you just can't keep them down. They do get knocked down. They do fall face first in the dirt. I have been there face down in the dirt, bleeding and crying and want to curl up in a fetal position and just stay there. But thank God Almighty that He comes along beside us and helps us and encourages us through His Holy Ghost, through His Holy Word, but hallelujah, through His people, through His church. I'm telling you, God's people, the church of God, they are conquerors. They are conquerors. He said so in His Word. So we've looked at the detractors of the church. The defenders of the church. I'm going to take a minute and look at the destination of the church. The destination. Three quick things. It is firstly private. Where we're going is a gated community, somebody might say. It's private. It's not that anybody and everybody uh, at any moment can decide they're going to run in. You know what the word of God says? Now listen. The Bible says this. No man can come unto me unless the Father which hath sent me what draw him. Don't you believe in conviction? Don't you believe that the Holy Ghost must convict one in order to save them? We don't believe that you just come clicking your heels and popping your bubble gum and say, well, today's the day I'm going to get saved. It takes Holy Ghost conviction to illuminate a person and cause them to see their need of a Savior. So there's that to be considered. And then there's those that have rattled off some prayer, shook some preacher's hand, been dunked in a baptistry, whatever the case is, but yet there's been no change in their life. There's been no change whatsoever. Their nature, their character is still what it always was. But somehow they feel that because they uh, recited some prayers or, or filled out a five by nine decision card, that they are destined for heaven irregardless of anything else. But the Bible clearly teaches us that if any man be in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, he'll be a brand new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. So because of that truth, there are multitudes and multitudes who are deceived, who believe that they are in Christ and are not in Christ. That's why Christ goes on and tells us that the path to destruction is broad and wide. The way to heaven is narrow. 
I'm telling you, beloved, that our destination is private. Everybody's not going to heaven. And it, I'm, mar- I don't, I'm not going to get off on a bitter note if I can hip it, but it's a marvel to me how people say, yes, I'm a Christian. But yet they have no time for their Bible. They have no time for prayer. They have no time for church, the people of God. They want nothing to do with anything affiliated with God except for the fact they want to miss hell. And this is the closest thing to heaven we'll ever see on earth. And yet they want no part of it. Don't you think they would be most miserable there? Where we're going is a private place. There will be no sin there. There will be no sin in that place. You know, one of the most wonderful things when I consider heaven, Brother Chris, is this. That the pull of sin will no longer be present. We'll have that new body. You understand we still have two natures. We have that new nature, that new man, but we still have this robe of Adam, this Adamic nature, correct? And so even though we're saved, we're redeemed, and we have the ability to walk in the Spirit, there's still that tug to walk after the flesh. Do you sometimes ever grow weary of falling and sinning and having to return to the altar of repentance again and again and say, oh God, please. I know I've done this before. I know I've failed you in this area before. But God, I've done it again and I need your, God, please forgive me. The fact that when we get there, there'll be no pull from sin, no tug from sin. Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. It's a private place that we're going. There'll be no Voltaire's there. There'll be no detractors. Everyone present in heaven will have a sole purpose there and that purpose will be to praise the one that loved us and gave himself for us. It is a private place. It's a perfect place. You'll find no fault in heaven. Can I be comfortable enough around you this morning just to show you my simplicity and how elementary my thoughts are sometimes? It's shared thoughts. They're simple and they're not even original to me. I pastored this fellow. He's a good man, godly man, saved. Very, very country, very simple. One night he was outside and it was a clear night, not a cloud in the sky, good cool night. You could see every star in the sky. He come to church the next day. He said, preacher, He said, it was a mighty clear night last night. You could see every star. I said, yes, sir, that's right. He said, here a while back, we had a water leak under the house, and I had to crawl under my house, fix a water pipe. And he said, there was old cobwebs and spiders and creepy crawly things. And he said, the view from underneath my house, looking up at it, was so pitiful compared to what's above the floor what's on the inside. And he said, last night I stood outside and I seen the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. I seen the Milky Way. I seen this star and that star. And he said, it was breathtaking. And he said, it was as if the Holy Ghost just spoke to my heart and said, do you remember what your house looked like underneath the bottom side of it? All those cobwebs and spiders and creepy crawly things. He said, that's just the bottom side of heaven right there. I'm telling you that heaven is a perfect place. Perfect place. We want to focus on Uh, streets of gold and walls of jasper. But I want to tell you why it's perfect. It's perfect because he's there. And there's an absence of sin there. Well, it's a perfect place to think that God has reached down in his mercy and his grace and redeemed imperfect man and will prepare him and ready him for a perfect place called heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to God. It's a private place. It's a perfect place. And finally, I want to say to you, it's a permanent place. It's forever. Have you ever noticed that we cannot speak outside the bounds or limitations of time? Even when we sing about heaven, we say when we've been there 10,000 years and there's nothing wrong with that. We just don't don't have a way to express anything outside the bounds of time. That's all that we've ever lived in, the bounds of time. But to think of eternity, to think upon it forever and ever and ever. I told you church is the closest thing to heaven I know is the sweetest thing.
And, and one thing that um, I'm noted for, you've probably already noticed it, I usually get to church relatively early, but I will be, I will be almost every time the last person to leave. I hate saying goodbye. I hate separation. I wished if it were not for requirements and duties that we have to fulfill in this world, wouldn't it be sweet if God's people could just get together like Peter said, just build us some tabernacles here, Lord. Just hang out here. Wouldn't that be sweet? Wouldn't it be wonderful? It'd be bliss. I'm the last one to leave because I love it so well. But in heaven, there'll be no need to leave. Gather around the throne and worship the Lamb of God forever and ever and ever. And we won't ever have to take time out and repent of anything because there's no sin. Hallelujah. I'm encouraging you this morning to the best of my ability, church. Don't bow your head because you're identified with God's people. Can I say something to you along those lines and I'll hurry up and finish? I might make it before 12 o'clock today. If I do, Miss Peggy, I'll give half your money back. <laughs> Could I say to you that I'm thankful to be identified with God's people? There's a lot of things in this life that I've been ashamed of. I'm ashamed of the upbringing that I had. I'm ashamed of the early adult life that I lived before God saved me. I'm ashamed of many failures that I've had as a Christian. But I've never, I've never been ashamed of being identified with God's people. They are the sweetest, kindest, most precious people. They've loved me. They've helped me. They have prayed for me. They have provided for me. I could tell you so many things. So many things. God's people. There's nothing on the face of this earth. There's nothing this world has to offer us that can compare with being part of a local New Testament church. You should never hang your head in shame or be ashamed to be identified and stand with your shoulders squared and your chin stuck out and say, I am a member of Charity Baptist Church and I'm proud of it. I'm And I'm glad to be identified with that body of believers up there. I'm glad to be identified with that pastor and that pastor's wife. That's my people. If you don't like them, just go ahead and put a checkbox by my name because you probably won't like me either. That's how it ought to be. When I was lost and undone without God, Sister Box had no idea that I even needed to be saved. God, the Holy Ghost, was meeting with people up here on this hilltop. And uh, he saved my sister-in-law. And she got to come into church like Christians do. And she brought my little nephew. My brother wouldn't come. He was like me. We didn't have any need for that religious mess. And Brother Marvin preaching the word of God. Little old Kevin got under conviction. And God saved him. God plugged him. My brother's still lost and hard-hearted. One night he told his little boy why he would have told him this, I don't know. But as they went to bed, he said, say your prayers. And then my brother went and laid down in his bed in the other room, the little trailer house, walls about that thick. He could hear his little boy praying. He said, God, please save my daddy. Conviction started right there. Conviction. He got so miserable he couldn't he couldn't get away from it. Well, he messed around and got saved. He'd run far as he could, scooted down on his knees in his bedroom, got birthed into the family of God. I was so mad. I can't tell you how mad I was. I hated 
God and that church and those people for taking my brother from me because he couldn't be around me anymore. Not the way that I lived and that he had lived before. He was coming up here to get baptized and I took a gun and shot a container of alcohol on the ground and sprayed it all over him as he was getting ready to go get baptized. That's what I thought about it. He could have got mad at me and talked ugly to me, maybe whooped me. Do you know what he done? He came up here on Wednesday night, wanted to take prayer request. Pray for my brother. You remember. You remember. Pray for my brother. I had no idea. I didn't know what churches did on Wednesday night. But this lining that altar up, putting some tears down on the carpet, praying some of them for a boy they didn't even know. But they loved one another and they seen that my brother was broken hearted and they prayed. I got so under conviction, so convicted, didn't even know what it was. And you know what happened. God hemmed me up in a corner. August 16th of 1999, I waved the white flag of surrender. I said, Brother Chris, I can't go no more. I can't run any further. I can't hide no more. I surrender. You know what God done? He saved me. Well, when I got saved, I didn't know any better. I started coming to Sunday school and Sunday morning and Wednesday night and preaching revival meeting and all the rest of it. And God got to dealing with me. Sitting back there about where Brother Greg is now. God was calling me to preach. You know what I did? I went and talked to the pastor. My pastor. God puts a pastor in your life. I went and talked to Brother Tootie and he said, uh, I thought he'd have some big long spit. You know what he said? He said, son, if you can do anything else, go do it. Best advice I've ever been given. If you can do anything else, go do it. And that kind of what Jesus told Peter. Jesus had preached a pretty tough message. A good number left. Jesus said, y'all going to leave too? What did Peter say? Lord, where do we got to go? Hey, where do we got to go back to? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, he told me that advice and I thought and prayed a while. A few weeks later, I don't know if, if the altar's still in the same place it used to be, but it would have been somewhere along in that area right there. I remember getting down on my knees and saying, God, I know you've never made a mistake, but this is as close as you'll probably ever get to it. But if you want me, you can have me. And I surrendered to preach. And I could go on and on telling stories, but can I tell you, for these well over 20 years now, 24 years, it's been God. It's been God's people that have helped and aided this preacher. Yes, we've all got stories about being heard in church. We can take the rest of the day and talk about that. But I'm not worried about bearing my scars that I've got while going to church. I've got hurt at work, but I'll be at work in the morning. I've got hurt at church, but I'll be back at church because I need church. I'm thankful to be identified with the church of God. I'm thankful to be a part of a local New Testament church that believes the book, that practices the book, that tries to live the book. Oh, hallelujah, folk. I hope I've communicated to you what's in my heart. We have the greatest treasure right here this morning. <clears throat> Maybe I won't be done by 12. My family and I sit around and talk about what a sweet, sweet treasure you have here. I hope you know that. I think you do know that. But guard that. Protect that. You know why? Because there's enough Adam right here this morning to blow the thing sky high. There's enough Adam this morning to do just that. What a sweet spirit you have here. People just ready and willing to work. People that pray for you. 
That sweet lady comes in every time I see her and tells me, Preacher, I've been praying for you. And I can tell she means it. She's been praying for me. Hadn't known me long enough for the water to get hot, but she's praying for me. You know why? Because she's saved, she loves God, and therefore she loves his people. Amen. I love the church. I love this church. I love these people. God help us to do everything that we can do to take what is a great thing. And you have something great here. Charity Baptist Church is a great church. And let's do everything that we can together to make a great thing continue to be great and to make a great thing even better. Not for my honor or your honor, your glory or my glory, but for the glory and the honor of God. For the glory and honor of God. What a privilege to sit in this place with these people and hear the messages that we hear on a regular basis. What a treasure that we have in him. And he didn't pay me anything to say this. What a treasure for a preacher. What a treasure for a preacher. I didn't, I didn't come to know Brother Kevin married a few months ago after we resigned the pastor. Brother Kevin was my pastor well over 20 years ago. Miss Peggy and I were talking earlier how that I was telling her how that when I was just a young preacher boy, how that Brother Kevin just took me under his wings. I, I know I, I had to have asked some of the dumbest questions. I probably asked some questions that he had to have thought, son, will you ever make it? And he was so gracious and so kind and patient with me and helped me right along. And uh, he ordained me. He and the church he pastored at that time sent us out to a little mission work in South Louisiana. Called me and check on me. What a preacher. More than that, what a pastor. There's a large difference, folk, and I hope you know the difference between a preacher and a pastor. You can find the preacher relatively easy but you'll be hard-pressed to find a pastor. And the man of God that he's blessed this great church with loves his people, prays for his people, and he gets in that book. And even though he's exhaustively studied this book for a few decades now, he's still mining it out, still mining it out and gleaning things from this word to give to us to grow us. What a treasure we've got here. To be able to gather on this hilltop with the kind of people that God in His good mercy and grace has let us gather together with here. And then to have a man of God of that caliber to lead us. And I'm going to say something else while I'm here. He told me to moderate the services. I'm going to do it how I want to till he tells me not to. What about a preacher's wife? What about a preacher's wife? Y'all have never met a, met, met a mean one probably. Now my wife, she's mean. And I'm kidding. She'll whoop me when I get home if I don't take it back. But, uh, you know, if Brother Kevin was my pastor all those years ago, she was my pastor's wife. And always so sweet and kind, helpful, I'm going to tell you something. A preacher, now he might not be right with God when he does it, but he can get up here and say what he wants to and clean off a spot every once in a while. Preacher's wives don't have that privilege. They don't have that privilege. They just have to love the preacher, love the church, and figure out how to make it work. I'm going to tell you something, church. We have a jewel for a pastor's wife. She's a treasure. You really think he could be the man he is if God didn't bless him with her? Come on. You know better than that. What a treasure. I'm saying this. Here at Charity Baptist Church, the great Charity Baptist Church, the caliber of people that God has given us here, people that are so musically talented 
and then you men that get up here on Sunday mornings and give devotions. My family and I sit around and talk about that, whether you know it or not. It's very evident that you didn't read that on the back of your Fruity Pebbles box that morning while you were getting ready for church. You put time into it. You studied it. And, and you ladies working around here. I've noticed you ladies working and busy. I mean, God has a nucleus, a group of people here. He has done great things. He will continue to and could do greater things. It's amazing what God has here. And then on top of that, to have the caliber of pastor that we have and pastor's wife. What a blessing. You know what we should be? We should be A, grateful. Very, very grateful. I don't deserve it. You speak for yourself. I don't deserve it. But secondly, we should be guarding. We should be guarding. Because if you think the devil's happy about it, you don't know him very well. He's not happy about it. You know what we should do <clears throat> as we close our service here in a moment? I'm not trying to play Holy Ghost in your life. You do what you feel led to do, but it'd be a good idea rather in your pew or around the altar come and, and pray for our church. Pray for this church. Thank God for it. Thank Him. Thank Him for it. And then ask Him to do even greater things than that that He's already doing with us and lend ourselves to Him. Give ourselves wholeheartedly to Him. Thank the Lord around these altars this morning for our preacher for the man of God that is placed in our life and for the man of God's wife and the treasure that she is. And it won't hurt a thing to face somebody else in this congregation. It won't hurt a thing to face somebody that's been here through the thick, through the thin, and has been a blessing to you. It won't hurt a thing for you to go to them and shake their hand and hug their neck and say, I love you and I appreciate you, and thank you for the investment you've made in my life. Thank you for your faithfulness, just for allowing me and my family to see you consistent and faithful through hard times, through low times, and the good times. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's right, and that is in order, and it's a good thing for God's people to do that promotes the unity of the brethren. Let's all stand, if you would. pianist to come. Song leader will have a time of invitation in a moment. Let's bow our heads in a moment of prayer, please. Father, thank you this morning for allowing us this time together with this, your people. What a blessing. What a privilege. What a fellowship. What a joy divine to be gathered at your house with your people on your day. And God, we've made an effort to try to communicate what you put in our heart about your church. But Lord, your church is so great and it's so grand and it's so glorious that we can't do it justice. But God, I pray that the Holy Ghost would do a work in your people's heart this morning and help us see what you've given us, what you've blessed us with. Oh God, help us to love it and to be thankful and grateful for it and to promote it in every way that we can. Help us to give ourselves to it. And we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.